Today our focus will be on taking up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Battle of Zama in the summer of 202 BC was a turning point in world history. On one side you had General Hannibal of Carthage, maybe one of the greatest military commanders at the time. Carthage was an empire that spanned northern Africa and parts of Europe. And on the other side, you had General Scipio of Rome, who had proven his skill in battle, but the last time he had fought Hannibal, he was actually defeated and was severely injured. What hung in the balance was world domination. Who would rise to be the superpower? Would it be Rome or Carthage? Both sides had 40,000 soldiers lined up for this battle. And on Hannibal's side, he had these war elephants, with these war elephants with tusks armed with iron spikes. Like, and they were like tanks, basically. As they charged into battle, they would inspire fear and terror in the enemy. And their sheer power, thousands of pounds of muscle, would break the ranks of the enemies and trample them to the ground. On the other side, you had Scipio of Rome with his experienced Roman legions, with their impressive armor, their helmet, their swords. And these soldiers were familiar with the tactics of the enemy. It wasn't the first time they had fought these war elephants. So on the day of the battle, you had both sides, 40,000 soldiers lined up, and the elephants charged first. They charged first, heading straight into the Roman legions. And as they came right up to the Roman legions, the Roman legions opened up their ranks and created these alleyways for these Uh, elephants to charge through, and then they were able to attack and then finally defeat these elephants. And then they began their charge towards the armies of Carthage. At the first, at the first point of conflict, Hannibal's armies were able to, his, his line of defense was able to hold back the Roman legions. But then it was the discipline of the Roman legions that began to turn the tide, and, the, and they began to push back Hannibal and his armies. Hannibal actually kept his most experienced troops in the back, probably the best soldiers in the world. And so this victory hung in the balance. Which side would win? And then at that point, when victory hung in the balance, you had the Roman cavalry turn the tide. They rode in and they actually attacked Hannibal from the rear and caused his, caused his army to collapse in on itself. And once that was done, Rome secured its victory. At the Battle of Zama, the Battle of Zama ended the empire of Carthage, and Rome was able to rise as the only superpower. And those Roman soldiers, when they fought, when they fought those war elephants, the cavalry, the, so the foot soldiers, they needed their helmet and their sword. As Christian soldiers, we fight Satan, a far more powerful and awesome enemy than Hannibal and his war elephants. We still live in an evil day occupied by the evil one. And just as the Roman soldiers needed their armor, their helmet, and their sword, we as Christian soldiers need our armor. To stand against the enemy and defeat him, you have to arm yourself with the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. To stand against the enemy and defeat him, You have to arm yourself with the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. No helmet, no sword, 
no victory. So the message today, this afternoon, is pretty simple. I'm just going to describe to you the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit and why we must carry them into battle. First, the helmet. The helmet, as you would think, is essential for any soldier. We have the shield of faith that blocks the fiery darts of the enemy. But sometimes they get through, and as you heard a couple weeks ago, we have the breastplate of righteousness to protect our bodies. But we also have the helmet of salvation to protect our heads. Paul isn't introducing a new concept here. In the Old Testament book of Isaiah, the helmet is actually something God wears. And he wears it in response to dire circumstances. He sees the condition of his people. He sees that they're lost and helpless. They're doomed to die under his judgment because of their evil. Sins have caused and created a separation between him and his people, a separation between a holy God and a sinful people. And so this is what he says. This is what Isaiah says in Isaiah 59, 16, and 17. God, he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. God's own arm brings salvation, and he puts on the helmet of salvation on his head. But who does he actually save in this situation? Who's actually saved? It's repentant sinners, those who turn from their sins, as we see three verses later in Isaiah 59, 20. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. The redeemer only comes to those who turn from their transgression. So that means no turning, no redeemer. And this is the pattern that we see all throughout the Bible, especially in the book of Ephesians, this pattern of sin and salvation. In Ephesians, we've already seen how we, by nature, were dead in our trespasses and sins and were children of wrath. But it was by grace that we have been saved through faith. So if you're trusting in Christ today for your salvation, if you're looking to him for the forgiveness of your sins, you've put on that helmet of salvation. One author says, putting on the helmet marked the beginning of battle. And if you're living this Christian life, you know that the Christian life is a battle. It's a battle against sin and Satan because everything has been corrupted by them. It's a battle as we fight for unity in our homes and our churches. You know it's a battle when we fight for purity, when we fight against lust and temptation. And it's a battle as we carry out our role responsibilities, whether it's being a husband, a wife, a parent, a child, an employer, an employee. It's a battle to carry out our roles as God intended. And I fear that there are those rushing into battle but haven't put on that helmet of salvation yet. I fear that there are those who might come to church or do spiritual things, but haven't yet committed their lives to Christ, haven't received the forgiveness of sins, and haven't decided to follow Him as Savior and Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's a scary thought that many on that day will be deceived. That there are many who call Jesus as Lord, but they don't know him or follow him as Lord. There are those who experience Jesus in some kind of way, but they don't do the will of the Father in heaven. They really just live for themselves. And I fear that there are those even among us who might think that they're saved, but aren't actually saved. And Charles Spurgeon, a, a preacher in the 1800s, wrote about this problem in his own day. He wrote, I meet with hundreds of persons who have had some kind of work upon their heart, who felt that they were on the rock, but they were not quite sure what the rock really was. It is a good thing that we know what we believe and why we believe it, and know that we are saved and how we are saved and why we are saved. For if there be a mistake here, it may be fatal. Do you know what Christians believe? why we believe it? Do you know how we are saved and why you are saved? Because if if there's a mistake here, it will be fatal because it's the difference between heaven and hell. And there's really no point entering the spiritual battle if you don't have your helmet and if you're still fighting for the wrong side. So you might be asking, how do we know that we are saved? What must I do to be saved? Maybe you wandered in here and you're just wondering those questions. Well, we have to believe the right thing, believe the truth about Jesus Christ. And that leads us and that results in living the right way. So a couple questions we can ask ourselves is, you know, do you love Christ so much that you hate sin? Do you love Christ so much that you want to obey him no matter the cost? Do you love Christ so much that you can't wait to be with him in heaven one day? None of us do this perfectly. We still have a long way to go until we see Jesus. But if you are a believer, there's this pattern of a Christ-centered, a God-centered life, a God-word orientation. And if you're not a believer, you could be a believer even today. You can go to God and and just pray to him, say something like this, God, have mercy on me, a, a sinner. Jesus, forgive me and change me. Forgive me because of what you've done for me on the cross, and I want to live for you. It's as simple as that. And if you are a believer, you have that helmet of salvation. But it's it's not enough for us to be saved. God wants us to know with confidence that we're saved. Because if you have confidence that you're saved, then that'll protect you against anything the enemy might throw at you. There'll be times that you'll doubt your own salvation. There'll be times that you'll be discouraged. You know, in our church, we've got widows who've lost their husbands. We've have people who are suffering difficult health problems. We have marriages that are on the rocks and about to collapse. We have people who are struggling with sin and have fallen back. And so when the enemy throws those darts at you, shoots those arrows, the helmet of salvation is what protects you. Charles Hodge writes, that which 
adorns and protects the Christian, which enables him to hold up his head with confidence and joy, is the fact that he is saved. So whatever circumstances you find yourself in, God wants you to be able to hold up your head with confidence and joy because you have that helmet, helmet of salvation and you, you know that you're saved. With that helmet, the Roman soldier at the Battle of Zama could enter that battle with confidence as he faced Hannibal and those war elephants. And God has given us that bulletproof helmet all throughout the Bible, but especially in the first chapter, first couple chapters of Ephesians. As you can recall, God has chosen us in Christ before creation, so we belong to him. That God has predestined us in Christ for adoption as his sons and daughters. That God has redeemed us in Christ through his blood, and God has sealed us with his Holy Spirit and given us his power. And all of this in just Ephesians chapter 1. And if you know this, if you know these truths, that'll protect your soul so you'll be able to hold up your head with confidence because you know that you're saved. And so you have to arm yourself, protect yourself so that you can press forward against the enemy. Brian Chappell writes, I am protected by the truth that though I feel weak, I am strong. That though I may fall, I possess Christ's righteousness. And though I am not perfect, I have peace with my God. And that helmet of salvation is, that your, is, is your protection. This, this afternoon, you might be feeling weak. You might fall. But in Christ, you're strong. You are righteous and you have peace with your God. And this helmet of salvation actually comes in three parts. Past, present, and future. In the past, we have been saved by Christ through his death and resurrection. In the present, we are being saved as we do battle against sin and Satan. And in the future, we will be saved when Christ takes us to be with him forever. And so this future is so important. This future salvation is so important because knowing that protects us. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. In this passage, Paul's focus is a little bit different from our verse in Ephesians, but I I believe it helps us to understand what Paul is writing in our verse. The focus here in Thessalonians is the hope of salvation, that future hope that awaits us. And knowing that future hope today makes all the difference in the world. As you keep your eye on that prize, as you know the final end, where you are headed, that'll motivate you to stay in the fight, to stay in the race. When you know that Jesus goes to prepare a place for you, when you know that the world and its desires are passing away, when you know that we are going to a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells, when you know that one day Christ will wipe away every tear from your eye and there will be no more crying or pain or death no more, when you know that cancer and war and injustice and oppression and all broken relationships are coming to an end, then that will give you confidence to push on and to run the race well. I'm not a runner but I have a tremendous respect for those who can run a marathon, 
can run 26 miles and torture themselves in that way. <laughs> you might think I look like a runner because I'm all like skin and bones, but I'm actually not a runner. But I've heard that when you reach, when runners reach mile 22 in a marathon, when they're entering that home stretch, they, they may hit the wall. There's an expression, hitting the wall, where you're supposedly you're like your legs wobble. They refuse to go forward. And your legs feel like they're filled with concrete. One runner said, it felt like an elephant had jumped out of a tree onto my shoulders and was making me carry it the rest of the way in. And so when you hit the wall, the body feels like it's running on empty, and the only hope for the runner is for them to keep their mind on the goal, to keep their mind on the victory to be won. And fixing your, fixing your mind on the goal will help the runner stay in the race when every part of their body wants to give up. As you go through life, do you, do you feel like an elephant has jumped out of a tree and landed on your shoulders and is making you carry it all the way in? Have you ever been in a situation where you feel like you've, you've hit that wall and you can't go on? Have you ever hit that wall and just feel like you want to give up? Well, that hope of heaven will keep you going when everything inside you and things outside of you make you want to give up. And it's that unmistakable connection between knowing our future salvation and running the race well that we want to focus on at this moment. Let's take a look at 1 Peter 1, 3 through 6. He, God, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So church, we have that helmet of salvation that will protect us, that knowledge of past, present, and future salvation, so that as we rush into battle, we're confident because we're protected, so that as we hit the wall, we'll press on. But that's not all in this passage, not just the helmet of salvation. We have to arm ourselves with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. There are six pieces of armor. You've got the belt, the breastplate, shoes, shield, helmet, and sword. Five of those can only be used for defense, to defend yourself. It's only the sword that can be used for both defense and offense. The sword cuts and it exposes us. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts, and intentions of the heart. Commentators disagree on what exactly is the sword of the Spirit. Is it, you know, what is it? You know, one option would be the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, is, is the gospel. In Ephesians 1, we read that the word of truth is the gospel of our salvation, and that we are born again through the Word of God. The other option is that the Word of God is, is the entire Bible, this whole thing, the whole counsel of God, every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
I actually believe it's both. Both, and we'll, we'll take a look at how it's both. But first, uh, the gospel. The gospel is that offensive weapon that's conquered our hearts and the hearts of other people. The gospel is that two-edged sword that cuts to the heart, that convicts us of sin and convinces us that we need a Savior. The gospel is that sword that wounds but also heals. And we see that on the day of Pentecost where the gospel cut to the heart. And when Peter finished preaching, the audience, they were just broken. And they, and they, they said, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter's response was, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And on that day, 3,000 people were added to the church. Last week, we heard about the shoes of the gospel of peace. And that the blood of Christ, through his blood, we have peace with God, and we're able to have true peace with other people. We were once hostile to God, held captive to Satan, but through the blood of Christ, we are forgiven and have peace with God. And in the gospel, Christ went to the cross and laid down his life as a ransom for many. And this is truly unique amongst all the religions in the world. For instance, Islam would be very, very different. Now, there are many peaceful Muslims who live in the United States and around the world, but the Muhammad, the founder of Islam, has said that the sword is the key to heaven and hell, and that peace only comes through the sword when the whole world is forced to follow the teachings of Islam. And only then do you actually have peace in their religion. But the way of Christ, the way of us as his disciples, is the way of the cross. It's the way of sacrifice. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Because if it was of this world, then my servants would take up weapons and fight. I want to share an example of how this all works out. And maybe you've heard this before, but it's, it's worth repeating. Uh, Edward and Lillian, uh, a couple, a family that lived in the city, and Edward was getting frustrated because he noticed that his trash can was getting moved every week. He put out his trash can so, that, so it would be taken up, but then somehow it would get moved and then his trash wouldn't get picked up. And one day he happened to be at home and saw who moved his trash can. And it was his neighbor. His neighbor was actually doing this to him. And so Edward got angry and told his wife that he wanted to confront his neighbor. But Lillian encouraged Edward to, to pray for him and, and felt like God was up to something. So Edward prayed. And he reminded himself of the gospel, that, that Christ loved him, and gave up his life for him. And then he repented of his anger and just prayed for an opportunity to speak with his uh, neighbor in a loving way. And God answered that prayer and gave him that opportunity. And as he talked with his neighbor, he was actually shocked because he found out that his neighbor was a radio broadcaster who thought that all Christians were hypocritical and selfish, that Christians, they live one way on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday, they're uh, impatient, they're self-serving, they're self-righteous. And so what, he had, what his neighbor wanted to do to him and his family was actually put him to a test. And so this is what his neighbor said. For two months, I tested you by moving your trash can back from the curb after you put it out where the trash man wouldn't see it. I wanted to see how you would react. 
I was expecting you to act like other church people I know, angry, get angry and retaliate. And then he continued, why aren't you mad at me? Instead, you're smiling and you're actually being nice. Edward smiled back and told his neighbor, I prayed and God told me to to love you and not get angry as God is patient with me and forgiven me and loves me. I needed his help not to get angry and he wants you to know that Jesus loves you too. That Jesus died for your sins and I think I'm here today to point point you back to God. The neighbor smiled and the story continues. See, Edward used the sword of the Spirit, the gospel, in two ways. He used the sword to fight his own sin, his own anger and resentment towards his neighbor. And then he used the sword, the gospel of peace, to bring someone who was hostile to Christianity and shared with them the gospel of peace, the message of reconciliation. So church, we have that sword of the gospel. It's not a sword of force, but a sword of peace. And the gospel shows us we all need grace. The gospel empowers us to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, and to treat our opponents with gentleness. The sword of the gospel is that offensive weapon that God uses to rescue hostages from Satan's grasp. So the sword is the gospel, but I believe it's also much broader than that. It's all of God's word. All of God's word is used by... is to be used by us to fight against the enemy. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And this is what Jesus used when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. He used the word of God to stand against Satan's attacks. And we see that the word of God was essential Psalm 119, verse 9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So when Jesus in the wilderness was tempted to turn stone, stones into bread to satisfy his own desires apart from God, Jesus quoted straight from God's word from the book of Deuteronomy and said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so if Christ, the son of God, needed the word of God to stand against temptation, how much more do we as fallen sinners need God's word to stand and fight against the enemy? As we reflect on Psalm 119, we realize that if we don't, guard our way with God's word, it'll lead to impurity. That if we don't store his word in our heart, that sin will come into our lives. And this is the warning that God has given to his people all throughout the ages, from the Garden of Eden until now. Hosea 4.6 puts it this way, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Church, how well do we know God's word? It's scary for us to think that God's people are destroyed by a lack of knowledge. And that 
when churches reject knowledge, when they reject God's word, they go straight into sin and error. And churches die when they reject God's word. One commentator says that when the church relies on reason, science, tradition, or even culture as the foundation for who we are, then we've surrendered. We've given up our sword. And if you don't have a weapon when you enter into battle, you've lost before the battle's begun. And so there's three ways that I want us to consider how we can take up the sword of the Spirit and keep it sharp. Three ways. Those three ways are to read, to memorize, and to meditate on God's Word. To read, to memorize, and to meditate. And the first is to read God's Word. It's sad that so few Christians actually read God's Word regularly. And something like 25% of those who call themselves Christians never read God's Word at all. Imagine if you were a Roman soldier at the Battle of Zama. You were General Scipio telling your troops to line up for battle. And you realize 25% of your legions didn't show up with their sword. That they didn't think it was necessary to bring their sword. That they left their sword at home. And if you don't read the Bible, you've left your sword at home. You've given up before the battle's begun. And, and the biggest excuse we hear, and it's a lame one, is I just don't have time to read God's Word. I just don't have time. Did you know if you read the Bible just 10 minutes a day, you can read through all of God's Word in just two years. Just 10 minutes a day will take you through the whole thing in two years. So it's really not a matter of time. It's a matter of motivation. In the book, The Wonder of the Word of God, the author tells a true story of a new believer in Kansas City. This man had just become a believer, had just trusted Christ, but tragically, he was injured severely in an explosion. And so this explosion <clears throat> disfigured his face, and he actually uh, became blind, lost his eyesight, and lost both hands in this explosion. <clears throat> One of his greatest disappointments was that he couldn't read the Bible anymore because he was blind and he didn't have hands. How was he going to read? I mean, he couldn't even use Braille. This man heard about how <clears throat> a lady in England used her lips to read the Bible. And, but sadly, even his lips were too damaged. And as he held up the Braille pages of his Bible to his mouth, to his lips, his tongue touched some of those raised characters. And when his tongue touched some of those characters, <clears throat> he realized, I can read the Bible with my tongue. And so by the time this book was, when, the, when this book was published, this man actually found a way to read the Bible four times from cover to cover, just using his tongue. <clears throat> Church, if this man found a way to read the Bible, surely we can find a way to read the Bible regularly. <clears throat> the easiest way to get started is to pick up a Bible reading plan. There are many out there. My favorite one to recommend is the one that my wife, Teresa, uses. <clears throat> and this plan divides up the Bible into seven different sections for seven, you know, one for each day of the week. I think there's a slide here that'll show just a little snapshot of what this plan looks like. So on Sunday, you would read through, if you use this plan, you'd read through Old Testament poetry. So you'd start with Psalms, a couple chapters in Psalms, 
And then on Monday, you would read through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. You'd start with Genesis, read through a couple chapters. And then on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you'd read through different sections of the Bible. And then when you get back to Sunday, you would read the next part in that reading. The nice part is that you never miss a day. There's no making up reading. There's no falling behind. All you have to do is look at what day it is today, you know, it's Sunday, and then you just read the passage for Sunday. So if, let's say you're too busy on Sunday, and now it's Monday. You don't have to beat yourself up. You just read the reading for Monday. So if you're interested in using that plan, there's actually copies of those, copies of these <clears throat> reading plan in the back that you can pick up. And if we run out, or if you want an electronic one, just talk to your community group leader. But the goal is that we would be reading God's word, God's word, the scripture, the sword of the spirit, every day. John Blanchard writes, how often do we face problems, temptation, and pressure? Every day. Then how often do we need instruction, guidance, and greater encouragement? Every day. How often do we need to see God's face, hear his voice, feel his touch, know his power? The answer to all these questions is the same every day. And church, just as we take the time every day to feed our bodies, we have to take the time to feed our souls. But it's not enough to only read God's word. I believe reading God's word is a good start. It's training wheels to get you going. But <clears throat> we have to remember what the psalmist said, Psalm 119.11. <clears throat> I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So reading is actually not storing. We actually have to memorize God's word to store it into our hearts. Because when we, re- we easily forget the things we read. We read things and it can come into our mind and then immediately leave. So we have to take the time to memorize, to store. And we're nearing the end of our series in Ephesians, and I believe God has met us in this series. And one way to get started on scripture memory would be just to look back at where God has met you throughout this series on Ephesians. And what are those important truths that God spoke into your life and important truths you want to stay with you when we're done with this series? What are some key verses in Ephesians that would really benefit you as to memorize? Maybe you're going through a difficult trial, and you need to remember that God is sovereign, that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Well, then maybe Ephesians 1.11 is worth memorizing for you. <clears throat> Ephesians 1.11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Maybe you're in a situation where you're tempted to lash out in anger and bitterness towards those who have hurt you. Ephesians 4.32 might serve you. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Church, there's so much rich theology in the book of Ephesians that's worth memorizing. And you could even consider memorizing an entire chapter or even an entire book. And you can also memorize 5, 10, 20 verses throughout the Bible so you can store God's word in your heart. Psalm 23 would be a great 
passage or great chapter of, of the Bible to memorize. <clears throat> For me personally, <clears throat> memorizing Scripture by topic has been the most effective. So I found that as I've memorized Bible verses by topic, it's helped me to remember and recall more Scripture than any other method. It's pretty simple. All it is is you pick a topic where you want to grow spiritually, and then you memorize key verses on it. So, for example, there are times in, that I struggle with the love of money, and I took the time to just memorize what God's Word says about money. Put them on index cards, and you can put them on your phone also. But here, let me just show you what an example card looks like. <clears throat> Here's the front of the index card. It's got the topic. The topic is money. And verse references under it. You see Deuteronomy, Ecclesiastes, some verses from Matthew, and then 1 Timothy. Okay, so those, that's the front of the card. And on the back, there's the actual verses. The actual verses all written out. So church, I ask you, where are you struggling in the Christian life? Is it fear? Is it pride? Is it purity? Is it a love for money? Storing God's word in your heart makes all the difference in the world. <clears throat> Don Whitney writes, imagine yourself in the midst of a decision and needing guidance or struggling with a difficult temptation <clears throat> and needing victory. The Holy Spirit rushes to your mental arsenal, flings open the doors, but all he finds is a John 3.16, a Genesis 1.1, and a Great Commission. Those are great swords, but they're not made for every battle. Church, you need to arm yourself with a whole arsenal of swords. John 3.16 is a great verse, but it's not going to help you with the love of money. Genesis 1.1 is a great verse, but it's not going to help you conquer your lust. The Great Commission is a great verse, but it's not going to help you in your struggle against pride. And if you're interested in topical Bible memory, there's a handout here you can pick out as well. That'll give you some practical guidelines on how you could begin Bible memory by topic. So we have read, memorize, and now meditate. And they build on each other. As you read God's word, there'll be verses that you'll be like, ah, I've got to commit this to memory. I've got to store this in my heart. I've got to hide this in my heart. And as you memorize, that'll actually give you fuel for meditation. Meditation is not this weird, mystical thing. For a Christian, a meditation is simply thoughtful and prayerful reflection on God's word. You don't empty your mind. You actually fill it with God's word and fill it with truth. It's where, when you meditate on God's word, it's, it's when you and the Holy Spirit do business together. And I just want to just show you real briefly in our closing moments here, how, just how it works. And as I memorized and meditated on, on these verses on money, God changed me. He meant me. He transformed my mind and my heart and my life. Let's just look at one, one of these references, 1 Timothy 6. But godliness with contentment <clears throat> is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. And as I meditated on this, 
as I've well, first memorized and then meditated on this, uh, God helped me to be more grateful and not to focus on the size of my paycheck. As I reflected on God's word, as I reflected on the fact that, you know, I've brought nothing into this world, I can take nothing out of this world, I grew in my contentment. And as I meditated on this, I felt like God was telling me, Alex, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. That, Alex, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And the the Spirit of God was able to catch me and convict me in moments where my heart might have been drawn to money or to a love of money. And so it is that it was in my life and in the life of the Christian that as we meditate on God's word, God changes us. And for me, it was that as I meditated on scripture, the sword of the spirit began to cut out that cancer of greed and covetousness. That I began more and more to see that my identity is found in Christ and not the size of my bank account or retirement account. That my identity is not found in the house I live in or the car I drive. So there we have it, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. And we see that the helmet and the sword were essential for the Roman soldier going into battle. And so how much more essential is it for the Christian soldier doing battle against sin and Satan? That helmet protects us so that we can hold our head high with confidence and joy as Satan throws those darts of doubt and discouragement as we hit the wall. And the sword the Spirit is that gospel that we apply to ourselves and to others. And it's, it's the Bible, the whole Word of God. See, the soldiers at the Battle of Zama were fighting for Scipio, but they didn't know if they'd win. Scipio had lost before. But we know Christ has won, and all things are put under his feet, and Satan has no chance against us. The soldiers at Zama were fighting for the glory of Rome, which is now in ruins and gone, but we fight for the glory of Christ, which will shine brighter and brighter throughout all eternity. And the soldiers of Zama, they fought for an emperor, a human being, but we fight for King Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let me end with this quote from Jeffrey Thomas. Let the word break over your heart and mind again and again as the years go by. And there will come great changes in your attitude and outlook and conduct. So go on reading it until you can read no longer. And that you will not need the Bible anymore. Because when your eyes close for the last time in death and never again read the word of God in scripture, you will open them to the word of God in the flesh. That same Jesus of the Bible, whom you have known for so long, standing before you to take you forever to his eternal home. 